the more closely related we are to the stories of our things that we decide to consume, the more connection is there, the more care is there, and the more we'll start to see all these other connections bubble up with our earth and with everything. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Emma. How have you been doing? How have you been slow living this week? I've been working on my knitting project. I think I talked about it last week, and I just love it so much, and it's coming along. It's a stocking. Cam calls it a decorative sock, which makes me laugh, because it is a decorative sock. I saw it in Instagram stories. It's so cute. It's very cute. I'm I'm very excited about it. I got it from the stocking making kit from You Fine Fibers. That's E-W-E, like a young sheep and they're our friends in Charlottesville and they recently participated in a giveaway we did on Instagram they gave away a hat kit but I totally recommend this knitting kit if you knit or even if you don't knit because guess what before this I didn't really knit and I just looked it up on YouTube and I'm following this pattern and I feel like a really good knitter (laughs) that's really cool well I'm impressed I have never really cultivated the knitting thing I would like to maybe my old age I'll get around to it (laughs) well you know what's funny I find that we're all kind of drawn to different you know I love natural dye and I think it's really cool but I just don't get excited about it the same way that you do you know like being around the dye pot and doing all that (laughs) I noticed you don't get as excited about like sewing and knitting as I do so and I like to think like you know back in the olden days when we all had different jobs and stuff it's probably what it goes back to if yeah. we were in the village together, I would have been on the sewing team <laughs> and you would have been on the dying team. Takes all kinds. I have a hard time sitting still for a long time. Well, that's the thing. This is like, you're not still because you're being productive with it. It's so satisfying. And then you look up and then all of a sudden you have this beautiful pattern. Okay. <laughs> so what about you? <laughs> well, I've been outside as much as possible trying to enjoy the last of the warm weather, and I have been harvesting all my herbs so I can dehydrate them and drink tea all winter long. I've got a whole bunch of these fresh herbs, and they're sitting on a table outside on the porch, and I'm putting them in the dry hydrator a little bit at a time and getting them out and stuffing them in jars, and it's kind of a big job, but I know I'm going to be really happy I did it all. And I've been dyeing lots of scarves and napkins and taking long walks, The weather's just been so great. Yeah. Speaking of drying herbs, I also have to add in here that I went and I saw an herbalist today in Virginia. She's near Warrington, Virginia. If you're in the area, the school is called Green Comfort Herbal School of Medicine. And you can go for a consult and tell them what is ailing you. And for me, I was sick about a month ago and I have just continued fatigue and a little bit of brain fog and a cough, a lingering cough. And so I just... I got to go and tell them everything and they formulated all these mixtures of these dried herbs I'm picturing that you're doing, you know, on the porch. I came home with like four jars of like a tea and a cough syrup and it's just so cool. It's the most fun. And, you know, the plant world is just ever giving and healing and I just feel so fortunate to have access to that. So if you're in the area, I recommend it. Green Comfort School of Herbs. Oh, amen. I know. And... This cough syrup is quite warming and cozy. <laughs> it's helping me with my cough. It's also making me think of embracing winter, which is our slow living retreat, which is only two weeks away now, which is crazy. And we also wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our retreat sponsor, Holy Lamb Organics. And 
not only are they great, but we are so grateful to them for their continued support and we love carrying their products and we thank you for your continued support in purchasing them from us. And also they came up in today's episode. Yeah. Speaking of embracing winter, Holy Lamb Organics is our favorite source for all the sustainable cozy stuff like your organic sheets and wool comforters and pillows. And every night when I crawl into bed, I am grateful for Holy Lamb Organics. Absolutely. And it's really cool. They're a small team in Washington State, family owned and and run, and we just love supporting them. We also had Jason on the podcast. That's episode 19, if you want to listen to it. It's a great episode. Today, we're talking to Sarah and Jess of the Rust Belt Fiber Shed, and we ended up talking about so many things. We talked about something new and fascinating to me called regenerative education. And we loved hearing about it. And we also talked a lot about natural dyeing and also a lot about sustainable home furnishings because that's how Sarah and Jess started out on their adventure with what is now Drift Lab Company. Yeah, so we first found Sarah and Jess through their Instagram profile, Drift Lab Co., because they do beautiful textile dyeing and art. And as you'll hear in the episode, they you know dabbled in some furniture stuff, pillow coverings. And then we realized that they were the women behind the Rust Belt Fiber Shed, which is really exciting because, as some of you may know, my mom and I work on the Chesapeake Fiber Shed. Again, we have a couple of episodes about fiber sheds, too, if you want to go back and learn all about that. But after talking to Sarah and Jess, we realized we have so much more in common besides the textile dyeing and the fiber shed. They also are really interested in anything regenerative, particularly regenerative education. So they've taken this idea of regenerative ag and healthy textiles and regenerative fiber, and they've put that on education because they're both teachers. And so a lot of this conversation ended up being about regenerative education, which as you said, mom, I think that's something that neither of us had heard of. And they have a project called Grounded Teaching, and they teach embodiment workshops for teachers and creation, not consumption for educational professionals. And They're just the coolest, and this was such a great conversation, and we can't wait to share it with you. Yeah, so thank you again, Holy Lamb Organics, for providing us in our homes with lots of wonderful, sustainable, cozy stuff, and we hope you guys will join us at our Slow Living Retreat, and we hope you'll enjoy today's episode with Sarah and Jess of Rust Belt Fibershed. Welcome to the Good Dirt. We're so glad to have you both. And we want to just start by having you guys introduce yourself and talk about what projects you're working on and what kind of got you to where you are right now and what you're doing today. Yeah. Tell us your stories. So I'm Jess Boki, Sarah's twin sister. And, you know, I think when we're talking in terms of how we got to be in the space where we are today, I'm a K-12 English teacher. I've taught English for 17 years now. This is my 17th year. So I've been a part of the public school system for a really long time. And I guess the first few years I was burned out. I needed something to do, you know, working with my hands, I guess. And so what ended up happening is Sarah and I came into this idea of reupholstering furniture. And so we started to take apart furniture and we always came at this space with like a a very ecologically minded background. You know, we ran environmental clubs. I participated in, I worked on organic farms in the summer. You know, we always kind of considered ourselves environmentalists to a certain degree, always cared about that sort of thing. And so when I started teaching, I needed a little bit more than just this very I don't know, it was very like a very cerebral profession and I needed to work with my hands a little bit more. And so we started doing reupholstering furniture. And from there, we started to really question the origins of the materials that we were using. And so, you know, when we were teaching during the day at night, we were reupholstering furniture and thinking like, where can we find fabric that doesn't look like it's straight out of a Panera bread upholster chair or something? So you know, we, we started to do a deep dive into like the, the weaves and the construction of fabric and really came to learn that so many fibers were synthetically produced 
that a lot of the yardage that we were using were derived from fossil fuels, from oil. And we really wanted a more natural feel to our products. So we started to work with natural cloth and fiber and started to really work with natural dyes. That's when we came upon, I think, Rebecca Burgess's book, Harvesting Color. And so we started to reupholster furniture with naturally dyed yardage. And it was a major, major undertaking to do that whole thing. So we did that for a few years and then realized our love was really more in the natural dye space. And so that's where we started to kind of put all our attention in a project called Drift Lab Dye Studio. And we were out in Maryland, actually. Yeah, we were living in Baltimore for a decade while we did this work. And we recently just moved back to Cleveland, Ohio. So we started Drift Lab out when we were out in Baltimore and really got to know like the different dyes that were in that space that we could forge, that we could, you know, utilize. And then when we moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, we kind of got reconnected to our, you know, our place of birth. This is where we came from and started to really you know, look into the natural dye plants around here and heard of Fiber Shed through Rebecca Burgess and following her natural dye story. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is everything coming together for us. It's the environmental component. It's the education and teaching component. It's the regenerative systems approach. And like, you know, just trying to create a design, a system where everything is thriving and is working to bring more life to everything else. So we got really energized by the idea of a fiber shed and went out to California to one of the symposiums and got more information on how we could create a fiber shed affiliate. And we came back and did that. And so here we are. We did that in 2017. We started Rust Belt Fiber Shed. That's what we're doing now. That's so yeah. awesome. Yay, that's so cool. You know, we just started our fiber shed here too. And we were part of a group that is doing that. So yeah. we're in that process as well. Did one of you talk to them? It would have been like Marion and Alex maybe about doing the clothing challenge. Oh yeah. The one year one outfit challenge. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's awesome. You guys are connected with them. Yes. We're technically a part of the group that started it. We just, we all sort of branch out and do different things. So we're not like in charge of that, but I did see your name pop up on like an email thread. Oh, this is so exciting. I'm such a textile nerd. This has, this all has me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> well, let's hear from Sarah. Yes, yeah, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, I'm Jess's like co-partner in, in crime doing all this stuff. We're sort of, she's my best friend, my inspiration. And I've followed her sort of everywhere around from Cleveland to Baltimore. And then she moved back and then I moved back. And we just love doing these projects together. And I think one of the things that we love the most about it is just the the ability to really connect other people to where their clothing comes from. So back when we were doing, you know, a lot of drift lab stuff and a lot of workshops with natural dye, just having people come to those workshops and connect with each other has been so important. And so I think like, that's where we're deciding and like, you know, what's the future of Rust Belt Fiber Shed? What's our part? What's our role in Rust Belt Fiber Shed? And thinking about what are we trying to do here? And just that connective piece just keeps ringing so true for us. So my story is pretty much similar to Jess. I was a teacher too. And then, you know, went to starting to think about how can I do things with my hands a little bit more, did the upholstery stuff. We did all this stuff together. And it's just been a really wonderful thing to have, just like you guys know, you know, your family duo to do this together with each other. So where at this moment in time is Drift Lab? Was it ever a business? Are y'all still working on it? Is it like a passion project? Yeah, it was a passion project. When did we start naturally dying? Like way, I don't know, 2012, something like that. And we were sort of, it was sort of that Instagram boom of everything, you know, looking beautiful and just like so inspiring. <laughs> and we were like, oh, we could make products, we can make pillows or napkins, we could source them ethically. And, you know, that was around when we were trying to actually start figuring out like where stuff comes from, like where our materials come from. And, you know, we were like, oh, we could source cotton. We can't really source silk locally anymore. And so things started getting a little like wobbly and we uncovered that the problem really is how the fiber is produced in that source. And then we started just getting a lot more conscious of consuming and consumerism in general. And just like, putting stuff out there. And I mean, I think it's great to have beautiful pieces that are amazing, but for us, it just felt weird going to a show because we would go to pop-ups and sell like our pillows and our napkins and our stuff like that. 
And I think for us, we were like, that's just not where it is for us is like selling this stuff. We really prefer, I mean, we're educators by trade. So we just really preferred the workshop aspect of all of it and teach people and running these, you know, natural dye walks where people would come and they would pull up and they'd be like, you know, I came to the park because we'd be having like a park dye, you know, just nature walk, like where we point out all the different dye stuffs and they would come and they'd say like, I pulled in, I thought it was just green grass. I thought everything was just green, you know, and then I leave and I'm aware of what's around. And I think that's just, you know, sort of the whole point is just becoming more aware of what's around us. And, you know, that includes our materials, that includes our plants, that includes everything. And so right now, Drift Lab is really more of just an educational thing. We do some workshops from time to time. We are spending a lot more time now on Rust Belt Fiber Shed and another project that we have that's more related to education, which is grounded teaching. And all of those things center around one core concept of you know regeneration and bringing more life into all of the systems that have really become very extractive, basically. That is so cool and sounds so familiar, doesn't it, Mom? It sounds yes. a lot like our journey. Indeed. <laughs> Tell us more about grounded education. You just threw that out there. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like we said, both of us have been career educators for the past 16, 17 years. And really, it's so familiar to what is happening with, you know, I mean, factory farming and then the farm to table movement, slow food movement and all of that stuff and the industrialization of all that stuff. So the industrialization of the healthcare system, the industrialization of the prison system, the industrialization of the agriculture, right? And so all of that stuff operates very mechanically. And we know that if you look at nature as a model for things, and you really understand how nature works, which we were able to do because we were able to sort of start to get plugged into just regenerative systems thinking through fiber shed. And we're able to talk to people and learn so much and like kind of be forced to learn about regional supply chains and regenerative supply chains and how all of that works. And by just getting into, you know, the dirt on our own properties and like thinking about how to farm and grow things in a regenerative way, there are so many lessons out there that we can learn by going outside and by really just looking at and observing how those systems work. And none of them are really mechanical in nature. And the industrial culture has really seeped into our educational system. And so if you look at how things are done, which is very standardized, very black and white, very achievement oriented, you know, that sort of thing, that is all a symptom of this industrial mechanical mindset in the educational system. And there are other ways, obviously, to educate <laughs> that aren't really that. But if we're able to sort of open up the paradigm a little bit to a regenerative paradigm and see what more life really means and think about how we can pull that into our educational system, we can actually start to use some of those principles that you know are found in permaculture and regenerative agriculture and transform the way that teachers teach, transform the content that is being taught in schools and all that sort of thing. So that's another project that we're working on that deals with regeneration <laughs> that is really textile focused, but it all intertwines. I mean, that's something that we've just learned is that you can't separate this stuff. So this grounded teaching thing, is this something you're taking into schools or is it something you're teaching workshops in or how is that expressing itself, that idea? Yeah. I love it. So Jess has been in the classroom for, I don't know, 16 years, I think. I was in the classroom for seven years. In the past six or seven years, I was a instructional coach for an educational nonprofit. And through that, I did a lot of trainings with principals and teachers and school leaders and district leaders and that sort of thing. And just came to see, you know, that industry in motion from a higher level viewpoint, really how all of that machine works. And so I was able to take a lot of my learning from how to work with adults, how the system works, how working with principals works, how all of that and pull that into thinking about creating a living system that's for education. And so a lot of that manifests in coaching or in workshops, in different classes and offerings that we have. We have a podcast called Regenerative Ed too, and we have a community page on Mighty Networks that's free just for teachers to join too. So we're trying to kind of think about how we can reimagine the educational system, but like really reimagine it, <laughs> not just like say we're reimagining it and doing something different. Yeah, but it's one part of a movement that a lot of people are, you know, doing different parts of. But I think I would just add to that too, that 
you know, I guess the clarified approach would be working with leaders top down. So going into schools and doing professional developments with schools so that um, teachers feel supported in making a lot of major changes. And then the other thing that we do is we speak directly to the teacher and focus on like health and wellness of the teacher to like regenerate themselves. And then, you know, how that expansiveness can help the teacher enter into a more reciprocal relationship with their students. And so they don't burn out as easily. The environment is conducive for everyone to learn and conducive for neurogenesis and all these wonderful things. So Sarah focuses, she's that like consultant. She's had that experience focus on the top down and focus from the teacher model and then out. But yeah, as she said, it's all balanced. Like it's a regenerative system, you know, it's just like fiber shed. It's just like, however, anyone might be able to find their portal into living a more fulfilling life (laughs) into a more healthful ecosystem or more healthful relationships, less extraction, like whatever portal that is for you, you know, like that's amazing. Go for that. For us, you know, it's an educational system and it's the the fiber shop. Also, we love local food. So, I mean, who doesn't? You know? So it's just um, being able to transfer some of these principles to different areas of our life. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> we'd be talking about this. It's awesome. <laughs> so Emma and I discovered early on, you know, we started out talking about sustainable clothing and even creating sustainable clothing. And very quickly, we found out that you, you can't separate all of these things. And now we've moved into more of a um, educational model, I guess you'd say, ever trying to produce things to sell to people. It's more like teaching people about this regenerative mindset. And I love so much what you're saying about the education system. And I want to ask if both of you can speak to this. How do you see that? What does that look like? your ideal educational setting for a child, or maybe what it looks like in the system that we've got going today, like kids going into schools every day and sitting in a classroom, like either way you want to speak to that. I'm just curious. It's like, how do you see that? I mean, so if you take a regenerative or whatever that means, like to us, we, when we say that word, we're thinking more life, creating more life. And that doesn't just mean more people. (laughs) It means, you know, more joy, the things that give you life, more curiosity, more connection, especially. And so when we look at the things that don't do that, the things that are extractive in nature or the things that operate more like a machine, you can sort of see how taking out or modifying some of those things would help create more life. So for example, grade levels, right? You're in first grade because you're X years old. You're in second grade because you're an X years old. Everybody graduates at the age of 18. You know, there's no fluidity in there at all. And there's a reason for that. It's because it creates a system where people can kind of move through it easily. And it's kind of easy to do. That's the same thing with the factory. It's easy to do it that way, right? That's why we do it. Same thing with actual like grades or standardized testing. You know, it's easy to do. We can point to a quantifiable measure that says kids are here. But what does that really mean? And who's even the ones that are saying who's here and why they're here and why that even matters? And we're just noticing that in a world that is changing so quickly, so quickly, like the kids that are in first grade today, who knows what it's going to look like when they graduate from high school? We have to prepare them to not be able to be just like good test takers or get A's or just stick with their peer group all the way through and just be worried about getting the grade. They have to be able to really question things, be curious about things. And the focus shouldn't be on perfection or achievement or attainment of something. It should be on learning, unlearning, staying flexible, being curious, learning about yourself, learning about your body, learning about how to be a friend, how to be in connection, how to be in community. You know, I mean, there's just so many things that take that sort of strip that away. Bell schedule, start times, you know, there's things that aren't even good for our kids' health. I mean, we know that when you start school late, you know, especially teenagers, they've shown in places where they've piloted like a nine o'clock school start time, there are less car accidents. Like kids actually die less. (laughs) And it's because a teenager's brain doesn't work at 7 a.m. in the morning. And Jess can speak to this because she teaches teenagers at 7 a.m. in the morning. And it's like, that's because the system isn't designed for kids. 
the system is designed for everybody else. And I mean, it's only become even more clear with the pandemic now. And so I think, I mean, that's a long answer to the question. It's like, Every school is a little bit different, but there are some things that are just typical that are really standardized and mechanized. And really, I mean, everybody says like factory schooling. And that's, I mean, it's a one-to-one a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, like you have a, you have this date where you're published at the end, you know, and you're, you're done production date. There's so many similarities. It's like not funny, but it is striking to go through the similarities there. So interesting. Yeah. And I think the only thing that I would add there too, is that For many people, especially with COVID popping up, like there are a lot of people who are homeschooling now, which is amazing. You know, they're taking charge of their children's education and there's so many resources online for us to be able to do that. And the the whole unschooling movement and all of that. The only problem is that, you know, we are still forgetting that we have to pay attention to the kids who don't have the fortune of, you know, or that opportunity to stay at home with their parents, teaching them or going out to the park with their parents or, you know, going to a homeschool pod or something, you know, there will always be public school until the system comes crumbling down, you know, and, and we have to be paying attention to how do we get equitable experiences to those kids. So they are on the same playing field as some kids who might be, you know, having a much different, more creative, more imaginative education from their parents. One thing that we have had a lot of fun doing though recently, because we also think school should be fun. Like this goes back to like more life, right? Like more joy. And we just love natural dyes so much that we've been teaching actual, just like school teachers, how to do natural dye and bring it into their English classroom. Obviously their art classroom, that's easier, but like how to bring it in and then let that sort of create questions about life and what we expect. And you can bring in math, you can bring in science, obviously there's so much to connect to. But that's been really rewarding to kind of fuse Drift Lab and the Fiber Shed and Forage stuff with actually the classroom and just sort of see how we can empower teachers to think about their lessons differently. I love this so much. When my kids were in elementary school in the 90s, I was head of the green school. And that was a really early iteration of environmental education within the schools. And it was all, you know, parent run and everything. And I enjoyed that so much. And it was really kind of going against the grain. I think, you know, the administrations and the teachers were also stressed and pressed to cover X amount of subject matter in this amount of time. And they kind of felt like there wasn't time for environmental education. So there was just the kind of beginning of that movement back in the 90s. Anyway, so I love to hear you all talking like this. You're really speaking my language. And sometimes I feel like, gosh, if I was raising my children now, I would be so happy that like like something like this exists or that people are even thinking this way. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you guys have kids? I have one five-year-old. Okay, so not quite in the system yet. He's in a Montessori school. And yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I've been public education, public education, you know, And it's interesting getting to the point where, you know, this past year, we're like, do we put him in public education? Do we put him back in Montessori? How do I make that decision? And we did opt for Montessori again, because he gets around and moves all day. You know, he's like not sitting, Mm he gets to choose his own work. And, you know, next year when it's first grade, we'll have to make another decision. And that's like, okay, do we do something else? Do we homeschool? Do we put him in the public school? And the thing about, you know, public school is like, some teachers do a great job and a lot of kids turn out just great. So we're not demonizing at all, you know, the teachers and, you know, the people that work so hard in the system. What it is, is that we just see the potential for a system to really help influence the culture to be more regenerative and more based on an economy of care and not just what you're going to be when you grow up. And there's just a lot of potential. We like see it as like this huge entry point into, again, this conversation. What you just said, that used to really bother me when my children were growing up that in school, the message was, you need to do a good job in school so that you'll be able to get a good job when you grow up. That was the message. And I didn't disagree with that. I felt like it really just wasn't very complete, you know, (laughs) there's so much more to it than that. And another thing that you've been saying that resonates with me is you are trying to teach regenerative learning or regenerative educational environment. And when you think about 
the teachers that we know now, it doesn't seem like a very regenerative lifestyle. In fact, it seems like a very degenerative lifestyle. You talked about burnout and, you know, it just, it doesn't feel like a lifestyle that gives a lot of life. It seems to be very, very draining. Yeah, it's really ironic in that way. I mean, the teacher role has kind of been conceptually the same since the 50s, 40s, right? The amount of kids in a classroom, you go from bell to bell to bell, right? But the amount of work just gradually, year after year after year after year, has just been slowly piled on top of the responsibility of the teacher. And so, you know, the basic public is like, what, you're a teacher, it's an easy job. (laughs) And then you're like that teacher from the 1970s, you know, but It is the same role. And unfortunately, teachers get paid pretty much at the same rate as they did in the 1970s, which leads to a lot of, I mean, you talk about unsustainable lifestyle, just the fact that the whole community expects so much of you, but then pays you so little and then just keeps more and more responsibilities on top of it. It is becoming an unsustainable profession, especially amongst COVID. And so we do workshops, like I'm a certified yoga teacher and certified breathwork coach. So we do like energy workshops for teachers as well. We have one coming up next week, actually, but it is very important to understand where we need to draw boundaries so that we can create space to regenerate. And all of this is just so important because it's modeling for our students too. You know, Mm -hmm. if they see like a burned out teacher, they're not going to see that it's possible to, to think different, to be creative. The teacher is not going to have the space to provide those opportunities for the kid. And we're just perpetuating this system that is going to self-implode. So when we're thinking about like environmentalism, when we're thinking about economies, when we're thinking about anything that is helpful, any sort of hopeful future, you know, we do believe that it to get into the school system and to teach kids, not just the content that, but to like teach them through how they're learning to be that person that is going to create a stronger fiber shed <laughs> that is going to yeah. create, you know, a stronger food economy, all sorts of things. So. So are you working on policy change? Are you specifically with the Cleveland Public School Board? I mean, it sounds like you have this beautiful ideology almost that you're sort of presenting and teaching through workshops. I know there's a million people working on this and entire degrees dedicated to like education reform and stuff. But like, how do you guys see this change actually happening? I want you to open a school. (laughs) (laughs) We've thought about it. But then we'd have like not as much time for our fiber shot stuff too. (laughs) So I think it's important that teachers are empowered, but it is really important that district leaders and especially principals, principals actually have, depending on where they are, but a good degree of ability to change bell schedules, to emphasize certain things. And that's not always the case, but there is a lot that could be done differently. And I think that there's just not the awareness. So I was putting together a training for principals and I'm like, I don't think that we recognize that we are sort of in, that there's another way to do it. There's another paradigm. You know what I mean? It's not just add social emotional learning on top of all of your other stuff and then add diversity, equity, and inclusion on top of your, all your other stuff. And then just keep adding all these initiatives. It's like stop and like reframe and look at a different paradigm. And so what we're trying to do is like open up the possibility that there is another way of doing it. And we're, we hope that leadership in the way that we can, you know, sort of influence leadership can make some of those different decisions in terms of public school. And a lot is happening. We work with some teachers that work in like a Waldorf school and they're like, oh, we're doing this stuff. We're like, that's great. Or or Quaker school and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, it's there, but again, like Jess said earlier, there's a lot of, most of kids can't access that stuff, aren't in those schools. So yeah, it's really important that we affect the public school. So we're doing it through training leaders, but I do hope that we're keeping an eye on policy stuff. And in our free community, we have like a, a thread. I think you guys have a Mighty Networks group mm-hmm. too, right? You know, you can put like yeah. topics. We have a topic for policy change and stuff like that too. And the, the Mighty Network group is free. We just want people to like connect with each other there. Again, like one of the principles of regeneration or whatever you want to call it, like creating more life is this idea of like relationship, being more in relationship with other people, being more in relationship with yourself, being more in relationship with the earth. So if we can create that space for that to happen, you know, we hope that things will, you know, take steam, but we don't have any real, like we personally aren't active in policy right now. Yeah. I think there are some people that are doing some good work in that space though. And what's your mighty network called? Will it promote it? 
Oh yeah. It's called regenerative ed. Regenerative ed. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're big Mighty Networks fans. That's awesome. Yeah. And boy, I had no idea that we were going to get to talk about this today. I mean, <laughs> the podcast is always full of surprises. I, but... I hope it's exciting enough. <laughs> we're pumped. This is so cool. It's great. So anyways, I'm really, really excited about when you started out talking about sustainable fabrics for furniture. That's such a big thing. That's just such a big niche for somebody to take it and run with it, you know, because just very recently, I was looking for a new slip cover for my couch. Get this. My husband put the cotton couch cover in the dryer. So it shrank. We eventually got it back on and everything, but I thought, gosh, we're going to have to replace this thing. And where do you find that? And is that something you even care to talk about? So when we got into upholstery, you know, it was because we really felt like we wanted to do something creative with our hands. And we just really, you know, my husband's a carpenter. Sarah's husband is in the trades. And we come from a, a family who like works with their hands a lot. And, you know, I think that the upholstery thing was really we had done a, quite a few chairs after our natural dye, like after we've decided to, okay, we're going to reupholster furniture with natural dyes. And the process for that was so overwhelming. <laughs> and through that, you know, we rented a little space in a boutique up in York, Pennsylvania and sold our furniture up there. And the price tag was pretty hefty, you know, because yeah. the whole reupholstery system, everything that's included yeah. in that, and then we sourced, you know, sustainable fabrics and then hand dyed them and then upholstered the furniture with them. It was just like, it took so long that that was not, you know, a sustainable profession for us. And we didn't have the marketing. I mean, maybe now we would figure out how to market it, but you know, the thing with furniture is that you can't ship it very easily either. So you're really kind of, and I don't feel like figuring out how to ship a couch, you know, all the, so it was a really wonderful, I mean, that's how we got into natural dyes. It was really looking at the construction of fabric and that's how Sarah became involved in, you know, she was a member of a weaving guild. And so we really started looking at fabric construction and the origin, the, the source of our materials through our, you know, experimentation with upholstery, but then it just really transferred into natural dyes themselves because we fell in love with the plants and just the whole idea of growing our own foraging and all of the beautiful colors. And we just really fell in love with that. So we kind of put upholstery to the side. Are we still have all of the chairs that, <laughs> that like we never oh. got to? You know, our partners are just like, can we upholster these chairs? And we're like, no, because we want to do it with the naturally dyed, you know, and it's just it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 But there's a lot yeah. to consider when it comes to thinking about light fastness was something that we ran yeah. into a lot because, you know, you have couches or whatever that are very close to windows. And so we dyed a bench, but in logwood and we were like, that'll be fine. And, you know, just right where the sun cuts it every day is a beautiful fade. And it's not, you can't just re-overdye it like you can with clothing. You know, you'd have to take the whole thing apart. So I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so that's one huge consideration is the light fastness of stuff and where it will be sitting in the sun. And then it's heavyweight fabric. So it's heavy. You're using a lot of dye stuff, giant pots and a lot of water. And yeah. so I think that's another reason why it might not have caught steam as easily as like pillows or something like that. Yeah. Well, is there anywhere to go these days for finding sustainable furniture? I don't know. I haven't been able to find any options myself, but I guess maybe a direction to go with this is teaching people upholsteries <laughs> so they can, you know, find their fabric. I can see why not everybody would be out there dyeing them with the big pots and all that kind of thing, but I don't know. It seems to be yet another aspect of our lives that's completely industrialized. And there's a huge industry between us and the furniture we use and the things we sit on. And just once you're attuned to this, it just, I don't want to sit on all this polyester and toxic dyes and I don't want to sleep on it. And I don't want my kids and dogs to fall asleep on it. You know, I know it's so tricky. One thing that I'm thinking of, um, because I'm again, like thinking about redoing a couch myself. And of course I'm like, it has to be a natural dye. So I'm actually thinking of just building a base 
And then doing pillows, you know, you can unzip the pillows so you could over dye them again if you really needed to and just sort of building it that way. So kind of creating just like a different type of couch that's more just like, yeah, rather than all the springs and stuff. And of course, it won't be like as super comfortable, I guess, as maybe the most comfortable spring loaded couch, but all those foams and stuff. That was another thing when Jess and I were doing upholstery you know, we were ripping out foam and we would just start coughing and, you know, we were reading in books and they were like, be sure you spray this flame retardant stuff on your stuff. And we're like flame retardant. Like what is in that? You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a healthy thing to have, I guess, probably, you know, laying around your, your living room. And it would be wonderful if someone would come up with healthier, sustainable options for that. We interviewed a guy from Holy Lamb Organics out in Washington State, Jason Schaefer. He did an episode talking about mattresses and the stuff that's in mattresses. And we were absolutely, wow. (laughs) It was amazing. It was an eye-opener. So, yeah, I don't know. Once you know about these things, it's like, oh, my gosh, where do we go from here? I think the other idea, too, is like, where do we go from here? Often, I think many of us feel the need to buy something new. And so Piper Shed does too. And like the whole reupholstery thing. And like you were saying, maybe teach people how to reupholster their own stuff. Or even just like quick fixes, you know? How can we fix things before we throw them away? So even down to, you know, clothes and mending. And I think a lot of times people forget, even, you know, within your own Fiber Shed, I'm sure you focus on this, but you know, our fiber shed, we like to focus a lot on mending and clothing swaps. And, you know, just this idea of reusing what we already have of upcycling things as well, that we don't have to necessarily manufacture something completely brand new. You know, we're really interested in if anyone out there has any connections to cotton scrap manufacturers, we're looking at a recycling cotton and trying to blend it with alpaca, which is you know, something that is an asset in our fiber shed. We have over 27,000 alpaca, registered alpaca in Ohio, which I think it is the most out of any state, not per capita, just period. But like to use all that alpaca, we'd love to like also reuse so much of what so many people are just throwing away. And so I think that idea of creation over consumption and being creative with what we already have too. And maybe it also means like we don't have springs in our couch And maybe that's okay because maybe that's the future. You know, maybe we won't be able to have springs in our couch. Yeah. I really appreciate that idea. I think a lot about how when it's like, what do we do? What do we do to get our couches? How do we buy that? And then I just get images of like warehouses and flea markets and estate sales full of couches. They're out there. You know, we don't have to like buy new stuff, but that's a whole just mentality shift and consciousness shift that I think the four of us collectively kind of have have found ourselves working in which is like it's about changing the way we're thinking about these things not necessarily just focused on like filling in the blank or finding the quote-unquote one answer to the problem yeah reimagining home furnishings yeah (laughs) and everything else but I really appreciate your tie-in to the fiber shed, because we do want to chat about that a little bit. So I guess for anyone listening who hasn't listened to our episode with Rebecca yet or hasn't heard us chat about our work with Chesapeake Fiber Shed, what's kind of y'all's elevator pitch for the Rust Belt Fiber Shed? And maybe tell us a little bit about additional, you've just mentioned a few things, but additionally things that you're working on currently and like big hopes and dreams for the future. Yeah, Sure. We are a project that aims to connect all parts of the production web from the soil and the farmer all the way to the end consumer and then ultimately back to the soil in terms of our local fiber. And so if you think of farm to table food, it's like farm to fashion, basically. And we do that within 250 miles of Cleveland. There's no hard and fast like line there. It's just a general guide and an organizing principle. And what we're trying to do is to help people understand through two growing arms of, you know, what a fiber shed does. So one arm of that is our educational arm. And that's where we're doing workshops and classes. You know, we're going and talking at fashion shows and we're, you know, doing flax demonstrations and community 
flax plot days and that sort of stuff. And then the other arm is, you know, regional manufacturing and really looking at how can we bring these ideas from the past and bridge them into the future. So we're not like all standing in our front yards with flax breaks, trying to make our own linen clothes because that's not sustainable. But the idea of using, you know, that fiber that has been used for so long for really good reason, and it's grown naturally and it outcompetes weeds and you don't need pesticides and it grows really well in our region because we're blessed to have Lake Erie so close by how do we create that on a regional scale? So how do we connect the designers and everybody to this sort of regional manufacturing arm or through this regional manufacturing arm? So those are sort of the two ways that we're starting to organize our fiber shed. I think in the past, we've just been organizing ourselves through projects, which is great. And we're going to continue to do that. So the first year, actually the second year, we did a Cleveland Flax project where we did a community of flax. We, you know, we got some seeds from Landis Valley that year, I think just flax seeds. And we created these community days and we had a farmer who's a regenerative flower farmer. Her name is Emily Peck, Raidnut Farm. She's so amazing. And she gave us a fifth of an acre to plant a fifth of an acre of flax there. And so everybody came out in November to compost. And then they came out in May to broadcast the seeds and then to harvest. And they they came to my house in October to do some processing. And then some of that actually got used when we did our next project or this year's project, which was the one year one outfit challenge, where folks created, we had a cohort of people create one outfit in one year using all materials within 250 miles of Cleveland. And so those projects, and we had an alpaca project where we sort of looked at alpaca and mapped our assets and our resources and talked to alpaca farmers and that sort of thing. Those three projects have sort of been our organizing principle. And through all of those, one thing that we've learned is like connection, connection, community, community, people, you know, when you get the ball rolling and people are doing this together, that's what they want to do. They feel like they're part of something bigger. And so That's something that we've learned, but that's been our main organizing principle moving forward. We're trying to get a little bit clearer on like, okay, there are these two arms. This one is about education. This one is about really supporting regional manufacturing in our area. Who do we need to talk to to do that? Um, How can we bring on volunteers and stuff on board to help us do that and to advise us about that? So that's sort of the direction that we're headed now. That's awesome. Good job. I know how hard that is Yeah, as being someone who also helps around a fiber shed. It's like, sounds like you've practiced. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So didn't you all just have, you were just talking about this, a flax demonstration event, like a couple of weeks ago or last week or something. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So the flax demonstration came kind of at the end of this, a kind of reimagined flax project. So we started the Cleveland Flax Project in 2018, and that's where we had one central location and we had people come out to manage the flax and process it and all that, that Sarah was speaking to. And then the next year, this past year, we did an iteration of that project where we decentralized the growing location. And so within 250 miles of Cleveland, Ohio, in our fiber shed region, different individuals could plant, we supplied them with seeds and they could plant this flax in their front yard in their community garden. And we had almost 30 different plots of flax around our fiber shed region. And the purpose of that was not to, you know, grow as much flax as we can possibly produce and, to, and turn it into linen because the manufacturing isn't even there yet for this. But it is a seed saving project. It was a seed saving project. And it was a project to get people to kind of understand again, ask the questions where their clothes come from. And we figured that if we had like 30 different locations and we had signs for all of them, that we could reach more people than just one centralized plot of flax with a couple of volunteers coming out. So that was really effective in that aspect. And so we just kind of ended that with a flax demonstration at a farm close by so that we could kind of show people once again, you know, here's the flax we grew this year. The flax that we processed was grown at a community school in a school garden. So we showed people that it can be done, where it goes, what it is, how it can be made. Again, with the caveat of, you know, this hand scale sort of artisanal creation of linen clothes is not the future of linen of USA made in a locally grown linen. That's not what this is. We have to bring in some sort of medium scale manufacturing back. Yeah. Have you heard of Chico Flax? Yeah. So we were on a panel with, it's called the United Nations of Flax. So if anyone's interested in 
learning a little bit more about flax, Chico has that up. They ran the panel. I think it was funded by Patagonia, perhaps. It's up on their website, on the Chico Flax website. And I think there were maybe like 10 or 12 of us from the UK and then Canada and then, you know, America, obviously, uh, people who had grown flax because it's so, there's not a lot of people doing it, you know? Yeah. And so trying to figure out where we all were in the process and come up with some ideas. And I know you all spoke with Heidi Barr. She's wonderful and lovely yeah. and excited with the work that she's doing out in Philadelphia too, you know? And then of course, Shannon and Angela out with Fiber Revolution are doing some amazing work as well. But I know that Sandy and Durrell have that, they engineered that or they worked with a university to engineer the break for the flax, which is really cool. Yeah, it sounds like they've been able to up it a notch into a little more of a getting the machines to help do it on a little larger scale, or at least they're moving in that direction. One thing that we did differently this year with the next iteration of growing flax here in Cleveland is that we changed the name from the Cleveland Flax Project to the Rust Belt Linen Project. And Rust Belt, because it incorporates more than just Cleveland, but The more important part of that that we learned was calling it linen and not flax because the amount of people that don't know and myself included like up to three years ago (laughs) didn't know that flax is the plant for linen. It gets really confusing when you're saying we're planting flax, we're processing flax, we're doing flax seeds, people think it's food. And people just think about cereal and they're like flax fiber, like fiber that I'm eating. (laughs) Yeah. So that was really important to change the name from flax to linen and then show it being grown. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, I would like to do a little experimental flax plot next spring. I'm kind of working towards that. So if you have any advice for like step one, two, three, (laughs) I'd appreciate it. If you have a little space right now, you can put some cardboard down or put a tarp down. And then in November, you can add the compost. So the compost has some time to kind of get yeah. into the soil and kind of sink down. Yeah. Well, one of you, I think, Jess, it was you, you just mentioned, you know, this whole process is beautiful artisanal process of like handmade, hand broken linen. Obviously, that's not the future of making things and having things and because it's just unsustainable. But I'm curious from both of your perspective, what do you think is the future of all of this and what is going to be a sustainable way forward and how much of it has to do with individual responsibility and how much of it has to do with complete overhaul of the systems. And it's just such a problem, I guess, in its entirety, the whole fast fashion problem, the whole fast farming problem. And so I'm curious y'all's perspective as to what is the way forward? Yeah, that's a really great question. I love that. I think, you know, I'll just use flax for a quick example here, but then we can kind of scale that out to responsibility. You know, when we think about manufacturing flax at this artisanal level versus the industrial level, that industrial level is so large because it's like the economies of scale. And so what we haven't really practiced with in like this more recent history of technological advancement is like medium size mills and processing centers that really have the capability to process regional fiber. So if we localize things more, like what a fiber shed, you know, kind of intends to do, and we have this medium size scale processing and manufacturing, you know, things will be more affordable than this artisanal, you know, just impossibly expensive garment to for anyone to to wear. The the medium sized industry could kind of fill in that gap that is so well needed. But also, when we think about the future of fiber shed, we have to think about this whole process through the lens of like curiosity and creative imagination. And really, what we want to do is set up resilient systems and help support farmers and producers and manufacturers to be more resilient as the times change, as the times evolve, because things are going to come up that we cannot envision, you know, that we, we can't predict right now. And so to set in place a sort of resilience and to set in place the kind of it's okay to pivot, to watch and observe, you know, one of the principles of regeneration 
is observing, right? And so you're observing what's happening around you and then you let things kind of emerge through that process, you know? So as we start to build, you know, we have an idea that something might work, but as we start to build, as long as we build up resilient members in our community from the farmers all the way through to the consumers who should be resilient with the ever-changing landscape of where they can get their clothes, right? You know, then we're setting up a system, the whole system will become resilient and can become more creative and emergent. And to kind of answer your question about responsibility, you know, it is very unfair that the responsibility of being sustainable uh, relies is on the shoulders of the consumer. That is very unfair because the system isn't making it easy or not educating people. They're greenwashing also is a whole thing, right? And so the average consumer just doesn't know their options and doesn't understand that they can maybe support something else. And, you know, we really have to do our work to maybe we can do policy change, we can do all of that, but also to create a market, like we see ourselves able to create a market and an educational space where people can understand why they would support someone in their local economy. And the more local we get, the more regional we get, the more we can trace our stories back to their origin. So we can trace our clothing back to the farmer and we might have relation. We might have, you know, invited that farmer over to dinner the night before because we're this, you know, close knit community. And now there's a story and now we want to take care of things. And it just goes back to that economy of care that Sarah was talking about earlier with grounded teaching. You know, the more closely related we are to the stories of our things that we decide to consume the more connection is there, the more care is there. And the more we'll start to see all these other connections bubble up with our earth and with everything. But yeah, the idea that it's falls solely on the consumer's shoulders is kind of a depressing thought, honestly. So hopefully we can help shift that a little bit. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Sarah, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is that what Jess was saying about remaining flexible and resilient because we don't really know what the future is going to hold. We are often in this space of like regenerative thinking and, you know, thinking about how can we change systems and, you know, all this stuff, we are still in a mindset and I'll just speak for myself. I, I often find myself still being caught in the mindset of like, hurry, 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 or urgency, urgency, urgency. And I think that it's really important to not conflate important work and maybe we call it urgent maybe that's fine but with like hurrying and getting it done fast because with all of this we and as we're talking it's all just so connected right so we don't know what string we're going to yeah. pull on and change and what what effect that's going to have and so really approaching all of this like whether you're a consumer whether you're at the top just humbly from a place of like authentic, like, I don't know, but, but this sounds like it's in the right direction. That's why Jess and I love so much. Like there's so much noise out there about which way to go. And it's like, if we just look outside at how the living world operates, we have a North star for how these things work. Like why does mycorrhizal fungi help a tree? It's because it pulls nutrients from like potassium from a rock, gives it to the root of the tree that needs it and the tree exchanges it for carbon. It's a reciprocal relationship. And so if we know, oh, there's reciprocity in nature, that's what makes trees live, right? Like that's, that's how it works. That's what makes the mycorrhizal fungi live. And so if we know that that reciprocity exists in nature, it's like, oh, okay, when I look at my systems here, where is there not reciprocity and how can I infuse that in there? And so, you know, really, if we just humbly look outside in our own bodies, I mean, we are walking microcosms of nature, right? Like, I mean, it's amazing uh, all the fractals that you can go with this stuff. But I think to approach it humbly to be like, we don't know, but we do have a North Star in looking outside or inside our bodies or other living systems just to see what's happening and how can we use that as a template instead of industry and capitalism. I'm obsessed. I love that too. <laughs> okay. So it's time for our favorite question. And both of you can answer. What does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer metaphorically or literally or any way that you are so inspired. Yeah. When I saw this question, I was like, oh man, the first thing that popped into my head was this image of me 
talking with some colleagues, again, at organization that I worked at last year. And it was just a really hard time in education for everybody, pandemic, classrooms open, teach, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it was nuts. It, and it still is, you know, a little wild out there. And we were talking about how do we just stay centered and grounded. I was like, I literally put my hands on and in the dirt. Like I walked outside one day and I just went like in the dirt, you know, cause like, it's so literal and silly to some people probably to think to do that. And as soon as I said it, I could just see like my colleagues faces on zoom be like, like the actual dirt, like you went and put your hands <laughs> in the actual dirt, like, <laughs> but it actually like, so that was the first image that popped into my head is just this, that grounding that the earth can have for us. And it doesn't have to be, you know, literal dirt, but just the idea that there is something that we can go to, to be grounded. That's the first thing that popped into my head for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Jess, what does the good dirt mean to you? Well, my mind goes directly to the idea that, that we don't, like I think of soil and I think of how much the average person has no idea that like in a teaspoon of soil, there's like more living organisms than like all the stars in the sky. It's this ever expansive microscopic world of just untapped potential and possibility that we just haven't, I'm talking we as like a larger scale, like mainstream culture, we don't understand, literally, we don't know the soil. Soil science is relatively like new-ish, right? What they're finding now about you know, all of the, like the microbial fungi, the, what Sarah was talking about earlier, all of the connections, that's the good dirt. Like all of that, those connections that maybe are potentially there that we just haven't tapped into all that life that is just sitting there, like waiting for us to discover it. That's what I think the good dirt is. I think that's what our educational system could be. I think that's what fiber shed is. I think that's what, I mean, the good dirt is our future. It has to be. That's the only way about it. So you picked a, a great name for a podcast <laughs> in my opinion. Thank you. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. We think so. It keeps living up to its yeah. name too. That's so beautiful. I really love that so much. The, the untapped potential there. It's so true. And it's so hopeful. I feel like to me, that's what I feel about untapped potential is full of hope. And I will add to that, that all the life that's in that teaspoon of soil is also reflects our own bodies, what's inside our own bodies. And that that's also kind of a new understanding in science as well. And I think that's also fascinating that as without, so within ourselves, all the untapped potential in the reciprocal relationship between our own bodies and the soil. So thank you. Yeah. And we carry our soil around with us. It just, when yes. I think about that, it just makes me be like, oh, I am not separate from nature. I'm just carrying it on the inside. <laughs> like I just don't yeah. grow it. I get to walk around with it. And it's, yeah. it, it's so fascinating. And I always think, you know, I mean, they didn't know this stuff, what, even like 15, 20 years ago, they didn't know stuff about right. the microbiome. It's and it's like, what are we going to look back in 50 years and be like, I can't believe that they thought that, <laughs> you know, we think it's the most cutting edge thing right now. And that's why I'm just like, okay, stay humble, stay humble, you know, just like, keep that mindset because we don't know yeah we don't know anything yeah we don't know anything it, it's so true and we hear over and over oh we need to reconnect with nature discover our own connection with nature but even even that language suggests a separation mm -hmm. and when the real thing is like there's no there's no separation. It's not even us and them. It's not even, oh, you need to understand how you're connected to that. It just, we are it. <laughs> so yeah. I don't even know how to express that idea, but yeah. <laughs> well, you guys, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel like we need to have 10 more, but before we sign off today, is there anything else that you want to leave with our audience or that you want the world to know about the work that you're doing or I don't know where people can follow you or anything you want to leave us with today. Yeah, I'll say there's so much future thinking in the work that we're doing. Like, oh, what are things going to look like in 10 years? And, and I think that that's important. And a lot of times that can offer hope and a lot of times that can feel like doom. So kind of there's these, there's this dualism about thinking about the future and living in the future and trying to create systems for a brighter future. And we forget, I forget sometimes 
that what I'm doing needs to be joyful for right now. And that doesn't mean it's always like fun, but does it feel purposeful? And am I not just being obsessed on this future thinking? So I think like wherever you can have joy and infuse joy into the work that you're doing and wherever you can find that passion, that is something that is connected to this, just this idea of more life. Like don't let the word regeneration scare you away or sustainability or anything like that. Like bringing more life, maybe that's through music, maybe that's through whatever it is. But if we can get more connected to that and think about being just more conscious about moving through the world in that way and being more present and having more fun and more joy with it, I think that we're all going to be a lot better off than just like measuring carbon particulate matter in the air and being like, ah, this is freaking me out, you know, and like, what do we do about it? And I, I mean, there's, there's a place for that. And there's a place for obviously planning for that, but really centering yourself in the present moment. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I just wanted to add, yeah, if anyone is in our fiber shed and hasn't reached out yet and you're hearing this, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you at, you know, restbeltfibershed.com or our, you know, our natural buy thing is driftlabtextileco.com. And then our education stuff. If are there any teachers out there at all, you know, you can find us at groundedteaching.com. Thank you so much. This was such a rich conversation. It's just amazing. And we thank you so much for coming on and spending your time talking to us today. Thank you so much, Sarah and Jess. This was such a lovely conversation. Again, feels like we found more kindred spirits in the regenerative universe. And it was just so lovely talking to you guys and so inspirational. And thank you, dear listeners, for being here. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast. If this is your first episode, welcome back. If you are old friends, we're so grateful for you. If you're not already following us on Instagram, we are Lady Farmer, and our website is ladyfarmer.com. And you'll definitely want to check out our slow living retreat coming up. All that information is on our website. Yes. Can't wait to see y'all there. Thanks for being here today. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well we're so excited to offer the almanac it's our private slow living community network where we share workshops activities articles essays recipes and so much more that align with our community's sustainable slow seasonal way of living as a member you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including the slow living retreat as a good dirt listener we are excited to offer you 20 percent off your monthly membership and three months free which is basically an entire season if you sign up for the year so go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com community to sign up with this special offer just for good dirt listeners yay that's ladyfarmer.com community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac or three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com community.